1 Samuel then this evening, 1 Samuel in the chapter 31, 1 Samuel in the chapter 31, we'll take a reading from a few verses in this chapter and then continue on into 2 Samuel in the chapter 1. Nevertheless, beginning in 1 Samuel, the chapter 31, the verse 1, the Word of God says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was sore wounded off the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. Verse 1 of chapter 1, then, of 2 Samuel. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziglag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people are also are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Ending our reading there in verse 4. And all of these readings really place in context that which we come to consider tonight. For remember, we've been looking at the life of David, and we've been seeking to draw from his life lessons which are applicable for us, but also which give us a little insight into the man with whom the Lord made this next covenant that we come to consider in our studies. And therefore, as we come to this account tonight, we see that the kingdom is going through a transition. Saul, who sat upon the throne, having been appointed by God, but nevertheless having known the favor of God withdrawn from him and from his stewardship over the nation, nevertheless continued in that role until this hour. And thereupon the battlefield at the hand of the Philistines, as the nation was suffering great losses, Saul himself came to harm and in the end fell upon his own sword. And so having spent the last number of weeks surveying David's life and taking those three valuable lessons from it, we desire now to come to consider the kingdom over which he now ruled. This is the moment whenever Saul has passed away, whenever Saul has gone, and David, anointed to be the rightful king over the nation as ordained by God, assumes a throne. Now, stepping away from the life of David and taking no more lessons from his life, I wish to say that we're not doing so simply because there's nothing more to learn from David's life. 
For surely we'll all agree that it would have been of great benefit to continue even looking into his life and drawing lessons therefrom. We could have, consi- we could have considered his deep friendship with Jonathan. We could have considered the day whenever Saul's life was in his hand. We could have considered even the very powerful testimony of all that occurred at Ziglag as he came to devastation, as he came even to great loss himself and with his men. And the Bible records that he, David, encouraged himself in the Lord. And these things and many more would have been of great benefit to us. There's no doubt about it. But remember, we're on a very specific uh, task here. We're uh, on a very specific road. We're trying to get through the covenants of Scripture. We're trying to consider this next Davidic covenant and place it all in its right and proper context. And so having considered the man, having obtained, I trust, a little more of a deeper appreciation of just why the Bible records that he was indeed a man after God's own heart, and why we also understand that the hand of God was so evidently upon him, and why he himself finds himself as a recipient of a Bible covenant, which not only is of profound significance to him, but also profound significance for many generations to follow, we come now to consider the kingdom. We do so against the backdrop of all that's occurring. And the man's important to the kingdom, there's no doubt about that. Just because David was anointed by Samuel, appointed by God, just because David so evidently knew the favor of God upon his life and the blessing of God and everything that he did doesn't automatically guarantee nor indeed correlate across to the truth about the kingdom over which he ruled. Now, we're not seeking in any way to set David on a pedestal, for David wasn't sinless, David wasn't perfect, David wasn't special. He was a man subject to the same passions, the same problems, the same provocation as we all are. He knew highs and lows in life. He looked back on successes and failures. He too chose sin far too easily and too readily at various times in his life, just as we can be so prone to do. But I believe that David is and was a spiritual giant a man worth learning from, a man worth taking note of, a man whose life is worth delving into so that that which we come to understand of him helps us then to understand why he stood out and stood apart. So I pray that even these considerations inspire us together, you and I together, to attempt great things for God, to expect great things from God. But what of the kingdom? Because remember, it's not just about the man. God gives it to a nation. The nation over which David ruled at the time of the giving of the covenant. The nation to whom now he is appointed ruler and sits in that seat of power and authority. So it was the spiritual landscape of Israel in the day in which the Lord visited David What was the spiritual, as it were, oversight of the people as God came to David and entered into this covenant with them? That's what we come to consider tonight. And I pray that once more it will be a blessing to us as we look into the Word of God. The first thing that we remark upon about the kingdom over which David ruled at the time whenever the Lord gave him the covenant is that the kingdom 
was a united kingdom. It was a united kingdom. Now, for sure, we all know that in the days which followed the reigns of David and indeed Solomon, the nation of Israel fractured. Two separate kingdoms emerged. And they're commonly referred to, of course, as being the northern kingdom, or Israel, and then on the other hand, the southern kingdom, or Judah. But we must also remember that a fractured kingdom existed in the early years of David's reign. As we've just read there at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul had fallen on his sword. And thus, the heir appointed of God should have, and no doubt did, rightly expect to assume the throne of the kingdom over which Saul ruled in a seamless fashion. But not so. Continue on in 2 Samuel and come to the chapter 2. And let's read together the opening four verses, and this helps us to understand a little uh, more of this fractured condition of the kingdom in the early days, the early years of David's reign. Chapter 2 and verse 1, it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail Nabal's wife the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. Now identify there in verse 4 something that's of importance as we come to consider this. David is anointed in that moment by the men, by, as it were, the elders of the, the people of Judah, simply to be over the house of Judah. Now continue on in the chapter, the verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and made him, or sorry, brought him over to Manaheim, and made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So in this passage, we see clearly that the opening seven years of David's reign were marked by division. In one part of the country, David was recognized to be king. In another part of the country, Ishbosheth was now recognized to be king. Come across to chapter 3. Because, of course, this was never the plan. This was never God's plan. It was never even the expectation of David, nor indeed of those who were considered to be his loyal followers. So, undoubtedly, a conflict ensued. And the Bible tells us in chapter 3 and verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And so, because of this division, 
Because one part of the nation recognized Ishbosheth as their leader, as their king, the other part of the nation recognized David as their leader and as their king, conflict ensued, and the Bible tells us it continued for a long time. We have a little understanding of this, do we not? Because the Bible's already told us that he reigned over Judah alone for seven years. So that gives us a little insight into just how extended this period of conflict was. Central to it all was the character of Abner. We've already seen that he is the one who anoints another king, appoints another king, as it were, over the people. But Abner was a devious and a wily battle-hardened warrior. He was intent on preserving the status of the northern tribes and the supremacy that they had up until this point enjoyed. And so he did everything within his power and made every effort that he could to ensure that Ishbosheth was a recognized leader of the people. On the other hand, we had Job, or sorry, Joab, Getting ahead of myself, getting ready for Sunday again. Joab. Joab was one of David's mighty men. He was a trusted confidant. He was a loyal lieutenant. He it was who sought to do everything within his part to see David recognized in the position that he truly believed that God had appointed him to. In the end, it was a ploy implemented by Joab which brought this war to an end. For calling Abner aside to quietly speak with him one day, Joab seized the moment and took his life from him. And thus, the conflict ended. Come across to chapter 5. See what this means for the nation. Abner's now removed, he's gone, and that power base that Ishbosheth relied upon to maintain the validity of his reign, his exercise of authority over the northern kingdom was then ripped away, it it was dismantled, it crumbled. So we come to chapter 5, this being in the aftermath of Abner dying, Joab taking his life, and of the southern kingdom being very much in the ascendancy, because remember the Bible's already said, David waxed stronger and stronger. And so we come to chapter 5, reading verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that us aside and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, not just the house of Judah any longer, over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And so now, after seven years of ruling just a part of what God had promised to him, here in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, David realized his calling. David assumed the throne over all the land. And a kingdom which was divided in the early days, the early years of his reign, was now a united kingdom. 
Remember, all of this is pertinent to our study. Why? Because this occurred prior to God revealing his mind and his will to David and to the people. The Davidic covenant that we come to is not found until the the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel. It's not found until chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles as as it's rehearsed again. And so these events, the events that we've looked at, and just in a brief summary tonight in the opening five chapters of 2 Samuel, they all precede the day whenever God came to David, came to the nation, entered into a league, entered into a covenant with them. That being the case, then as I survey what we've considered and do so, of course, with an eye looking forward to what we come to consider in the Davidic covenant, it is my firm belief that God conferred his blessing upon David, upon the entire nation of Israel, that he then went on to reveal his promises to them, placing it all within the legal framework that we call the Davidic covenant, And the reason that he did so, the reason in that that moment that he could do so, was because of the fact that the kingdom was now united. Was the truth that unity now existed between his chosen people. Those who were once at war with each other, now knew a coming together new peaceful times even in their midst. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity. The word unity is found only three times in Scripture. Once in the Psalms, Psalm 133, as we've just been quoting, but also then twice in the book of Ephesians. In the chapter 4. Once it's directed to the Jewish people, God's chosen people. The other two times it's directed at the church, Christ's purchased people. But both hold a special place in the heart of God. Both have a distinct but crucial role in God's plan for the ages. But nevertheless, the theme of his message to Israel in the Old Testament, to the church in the New Testament, remains unchanged. Unity. Out of all the most essential things we need to know, out of all the essential things we need to have present in our assembly here, When it comes to that which should be found in us and amongst us, surely unity is the most crucial of all. It is unity which allows us to strive together for a common goal. It is unity which allows us to pull together our unique gifts and our unique abilities in a most constructive manner. It's unity which allows us to rejoice in and indeed Uh, to rejoice in the value and the knowledge of the existence of diversity in the body, whilst always recognizing that we have but one head. We serve one master. We obey one commander. And we follow after one guide. And so tonight, the Word of God challenges us just as we see Israel here arrive at that point of unity, 
in the reign of David, a point where the blessing of God was known, a point where the promises of God would just imminently be revealed. There's unity present amongst the nation. That thing that's described as being good and pleasant, it's found, it's known amongst them. But is that same thing unity, the good and the pleasant thing, known as an evident reality in our assembly? I ask that question not because I think it's to be answered in the negative, nor indeed because I have highlighted or found some evidence to the contrary. But rather, I highlight this issue, and we come to this issue, we ask this question, why? Because it's so important for our assembly. Just as unity in the kingdom preceded God's blessing, and God's blessing was so evident upon the nation in those times, Consider one or 2 Samuel in the chapter 5 and readeth the blessing of God in very real terms because it tells us there in the verse 10, David went on and grew great and the Lord God of hosts was with him. In the verse 12, it goes on to say, David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Unity preceded God's blessing. But not only did it precede God's blessing, but remember, we're coming to 2 Samuel in the chapter 7 in weeks to come, and therefore it preceded a fresh revelation of God's promises and the giving of this Davidic covenant. Unity is that which preceded it. So unity was known in the days of blessing. Unity preceded a fresh revelation of God's uh, promises. And so too, I tell you tonight, that if we are to see and experience for ourselves the blessing of God upon our assembly, a blessing that I believe that He is willing and ready to outpour upon us. If we are to know a fresh manifestation and fulfillment of His promises to us, then unity must exist and pre-exist both of those. Must be found amongst us. Come to Ephesians in the chapter 4. Let's read together this passage where we find two occurrences of this word unity. And a message directed to you and I, the New Testament church. Ephesians is a great book. It's a book that reveals to us much about God and how God works in our lives, in our world, and indeed in a local assembly. It speaks much of that which will help us, especially toward the end of the book, to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God. But here in the midst of the book, we're reminded of how the truth of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ the truth of coming to a further and greater knowledge of His Word, more and more of us as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, how it should impact then upon everything that we do and say together. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called and one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Unity. Tonight, my only exhortation is exactly that of what Paul writes off in verse 1. Walk worthy. Let us all endeavor to walk worthy. How do you do that, you may ask? Well, note in verse 2, humility. Just as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Let humility mark our interactions. Let humility mark our service. Let humility mark our coming together as we seek to serve one another. Selfishness will bring disunity. Demanding that our needs are met will bring disunity. But humility, considering others before ourselves, always brings unity. Notice in verse 13 that not only humility is important, but recognizing God's work in Christ is important. That's what brings unity. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice both of these things, humility and recognizing God's work in Christ as it's seen resplendent in each one who counts themselves amongst our assembly here. Both of these things do not and cannot originate in us or with us. They are both evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who creates unity. It is you and I who are charged with the maintaining of unity. 
of continuing in unity. The Lord himself said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. By this all men shall know ye are my disciples, when you're unified. The Belgian draft horse is an amazing animal. We're told that one Belgian draft horse can pull approximately 8,000 pounds of weight, or for the millennials amongst us, 3,628 kilos. That roughly is the weight of a hippopotamus. One Belgian horse can pull a hippopotamus. Put two of the horses together and they can pull 22,000 pounds of weight or roughly about 10,000 kilos. That's equivalent to the weight of the U.S. president's armored Cadillac limousine. But if those same two horses are trained by a knowledgeable trainer, if they live together, if they eat together, if they work together, then instead of pulling 22,000 pounds of weight or 10,000 kilos, they can pull 32,000 pounds or 14,500 kilos. That's roughly equivalent, and I don't know who measured them, but that's roughly equivalent to two T-Rexes, I'm told. But just think of it. Two horses with that ability to pull that power when they're trained, when they're shackled together, when they learn to cohabit, as it were, live in the same surroundings, work together and eat together and do what they do together. What's my point? we can do more. And we can see more done. We can be better used of God when we all together live, walk, and serve in the Spirit. Unity. Not only was it a kingdom that was unified, but number two, let us look at the kingdom a little further. Let us inspect it a little more and note that it was a kingdom on a war footing. It was a kingdom on a war footing. We're told by reliable sources that world superpowers such as the U.S. or China are but one move away from a war footing. That simply means that in just one sitting of either the U.S. Congress or the Chinese Parliament, an entire nation can be readied for a sustained and intensive conflict. Military might would be mobilized. Production in factories would be honed and ramped up. Medical supplies would be readied. Oil and gas reserves would be released. Financial mechanisms would be put into place, and all this so that a nation would be ready for anything. And that nation would ultimately prevail. Viewing Israel in this period in which we read here in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel, we behold a nation who had been at war and who now stands ready for war at any moment. Over the recent years prior to David's ascension, the Philistines had been a perpetual thorn in the flesh. 
And so as David comes to the throne, we've noted already that there was a war between the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south. There was an internal conflict that was raging and an internal conflict that was ongoing. But as we enter into chapter 6, come now to chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David's, remember, sitting on the united throne of Israel. We come then to view him in a war against the Jebusites. Look in the verse 6 of chapter 6. And it tells us there, I'm in 2 Samuel. Apologize for that. That's where we're supposed to be. <laughs> there we go in chapters. Yep. And so it tells us there in the first six of, or sorry, first six, yes, of chapter five. I'm still in. The, the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind, the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind, the lame, shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built around about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. And so he enters into an immediate conflict, this time with the Jebusites. Come to verse 17 of that chapter, chapter 5. And note another uh, war is engaged in, and this time it's the Philistines, because it tells us when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David. David heard of it and went down to the hold. Then the Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephraim. What happened? Read verse 20. Victory followed. David came to Baal-perazim, and David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. A real victory ensues. Now come to verse 22. The Bible tells us the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephraim. And what happens? Victory ensues. Verse 25, David did so as the Lord had commanded, smote the Philistines from Geba until they come to Gazer. And so remember, we're ever increasingly inching forth to that time whenever God reveals himself to David, whenever he comes and enters into this covenant. But nevertheless, Israel as a nation is either involved in a war are ready for a war. Now we can speculate for just a few moments, quite rightly I believe, on how that would have looked as it were in the nation at the time. Undoubtedly, anxiety was rife. Men and women everywhere were on high alert. The pressure of continually being at war was sustained and unending. Every day brought fresh challenges. Every week brought new threats and another possibility. And all of these things had the potential, surely, to demoralize a nation. 
All of these things had the potential to distract David from the important work that God had called him to do. But despite that possibility, and whatever may have been the case of that analysis of what was ongoing in the nation at the time, God was still very much at work. He was in control. And yes, his people were involved in continual conflict, all according to his plan. But in these days of continual conflict, they knew God's consistent care. His hand was upon them. His strength empowered them. His wisdom guided them. His blessing meant that they continually proved victorious. And so against this backdrop, a backdrop of a nation ready for war, a backdrop of a nation involved in war, one in which Israel knew threats in every hand, where much uncertainty prevailed, where undoubtedly the hearts of many were unsettled and concerned, God came to his people. God saved his people. And God covenanted with his people. All of this communicates timeless truth into our lives here in the 21st century. For we too are in a war. Of that there is no doubt. But we too are never alone. And so we should never doubt. From the turn of this year, we've been consistently reminded of this theme. Alan dealt with it in January. Morris and Colin have all touched upon it, and Denver has reminded us us of it in recent times. Various other men in our prayer meetings have addressed this same theme. In the pulpit ministry in the Lord's Day, we have looked at uh, Timothy here in the Bible class in the early part of the year, and then we have also looked in the, the matter of prayer and now in the life of Job. And over and over again, we've been reminded from the Word of God That Christian warfare is what we are called to. Christian warfare is what we are engaged in. So believer tonight, understand afresh from the Word of God that we face relentless aggression from the foe. We face continual attacks on every hand and we must always be alert, always ready, always on a war footing. I know that's not perhaps the most uplifting news to deliver on a dark Tuesday night, especially as we stand on the threshold of winter. But it's a biblical fact, and one that we must always be conscious of. The Word of God reveals to us that we battle against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Being aware of who our enemy is, Satan himself. The one who is the marshal and the commander of demonic forces. The one who is the god of this age. And oh, how clearly we're beginning to see that more and more. But aware of whom we face, we must also, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 in verse 11, be aware of his tactics, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, Paul writes. 
So what are his devices? What are his tactics? Well, according to Peter, we know that he seeks to devour. It simply means to discourage, to remove, as it were, from a place of usefulness, from a place of service in the Lord's army, those who follow after the Lord. His schemes and his plans are referred to as wiles, that by which he aims to deceive the masses, but also the individual. His attacks are portrayed as fiery darts. And so we know that he works against us. He seeks to demoralize us. He seeks to discourage us. He seeks to derail us from the path that God has for us. He seeks to challenge God's word. He seeks to undermine God's authority, just as he said to Eve in the garden, hath God said. He seeks to question and cause us to question our standing in Christ, our acceptance before God. He seeks to capitalize in crises. He seeks to manipulate hard and difficult situations to his advantage, regardless of the cost in our lives. He seeks to utilize false teachers in our world, all with the charisma and the ability to influence millions. He offers you and I detours disguised as shortcuts, all with the promise of allowing us to see and to know God's Word fulfilled in our lives. But these shortcuts in reality only ever bring devastation, disaster, and ultimately death. He seeks to attack us in our weakest hours, in our weakest spots. He is continually waging a war in this generation against the mind. Seeking to convince the individual believer, you and I, to capitulate to overwhelming pressure and sustain divergence from the will and from the Word of God. His fiery darts are they which relentlessly flood our minds with all manner of filth, with all manner of fear, with all manner of fancy. Because the devil knows that if he wins the battle of our mind, he wins the battle for our hearts, and he wins the battle for our lives. And all through the New Testament, we are challenged repeatedly to be aware of these things. The church of Jesus Christ is exhorted to be ready for war, to be engaged in war, to continue in war. We are to beware of false prophets, teachers, and pastors, according to 1 Timothy 6 and verses 3 to 5, because these individuals will surely come and seek to deceive. We are to beware of busybodies who will be prevalent, interfering with anyone and anything, even the very sacred affairs of church life and God's work, according to 1 Peter 4 and the verse 15. According to Ephesians, adulterers will be found everywhere in the church. Those who sin against God and sin against His Word. Those who give their love and devotion to another in every area of their lives, even their very spiritual life. According to Revelation, seducers will also come. 
Those who with enticing words of man's wisdom will seek to win hearts and minds, seducing believers to commit fornication and practice worship in a way which is completely at odds with God's revealed will. And indeed, with Scripture's very clear and consistent pattern. But praise God, despite all these realities, we still prevail. We fight from victory to victory. And as we engage with the enemy, surely the word of the Lord to David that's found here in chapter 5 and verse 19 is ours to claim. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt I deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. Tell me tonight, are you aware of the devil's attacks in your life? Are you conscious of his schemes and things you come to or go through? Undoubtedly, we are a fellowship who are engaged in spiritual conflict right at this very hour. There is a force that wars against the preaching of God's Word in this assembly. There is a force that wars against the calling out in prayer of God's people. There are sadly even those who have fallen victim to his schemes in very recent times and simply disappeared from the fight. How do we prevail? Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Simply put, he's saying, be ready at all times for action. Be ready at all times for battle. Be alert. Don't be a people who are marked by apathy. Don't be a lukewarm believer. Don't be a sleepy or sleeping believer. Be ready. Paul says we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That communicates to us the truth that we are not to rely on our own strength. We're not to be deceived into thinking that we are able or we are capable, that we have it all figured out or we have it all covered. No, we're to put on the whole armor of God. We're to be found every day bedecked in God's armor. God's defenses against Satan's attacks that we may be able to withstand. And remember at all times, The battle isn't ours. It's the Lord's. But we must be ready for the battle. Greater is he that is in us. Thank God tonight that he who is in us has already overcome. He is the captain of our salvation. And tonight he wears the victor's crown. And one day every enemy shall be made his footstool. But God's Word reminds us, be ready for war. It was a kingdom that was united. It was a kingdom on a a war footing. But thirdly and finally, it was a kingdom with a heritage. Come to 1 Chronicles in chapter 16. 
And the old enemy, the clock, is prevailed again in this hour. And so we're not going to be able to read, as was my desire, to be able to read together the verses 7 through 36. But I commend them to you. Because the Bible tells us there in verse 7 that then on that day David first or delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. And what follows then down to verse 36 is a, an account of a psalm that is spoken unto the people. You will, of course, identify many common uh, phrases within this writing here in 1 Chronicles in the chapter 16 because they correlate with Psalms 105 and Psalm 96. But nevertheless, as we view it, David is intent on in rehearsing the goodness of God. It's his intent to highlight and indeed spotlight God's unfailing grace and his attribute of being a covenant-keeping God. If you were to read in verses 8 through 12, you would see that he identifies that this is a song not only about who God is, but about what God has done. In verse 13, he traces the goodness of God right back to the days of corporate infancy. In verses 15 through 18, he testifies of the promises God has already made to them. In verses 19 through 22, he points to evidence of fulfillment, or indeed partial fulfillment at this point, of all that God had promised. In verses 23 through 28, he concerns himself with relating all that he knows to be true about God. He exhorts a nation to be busy declaring his marvelous works amongst all the nations. And then as he concludes in verses 29 through 33, he speaks with certainty of that which shall be peace, stability, true worship and the beauty or likeness of holiness, the evidence of the Lord reigning among them of judgment, of justice being meted out by him and him alone. And then he concludes with a final reminder and a final exhortation. And right through this psalm, he's maximizing every opportunity to give thanks to God for who he is and for everything he has done. He's referencing all of their histor historical records, and he's speaking with authority in all that is yet to be. And remember, our thoughts are fixed upon the kingdom tonight. Our desire has been to establish a little context about the nation to whom God entered into a covenant with. A nation, remember, that was established because a commitment made in a previous covenant being made to Abraham had been fulfilled. And oh, the wondrous things that David could look back upon as he stood before the people and as he rehearsed the goodness and the greatness of God as he shone that spotlight on the rich heritage that they enjoyed. And so it was to such a nation, it was in such a moment that God came and spoke very clearly and covenanted to bless, to prosper, and to preserve his people. It was to this king, it was to this people, that God spake and promised. And so they knew great expectancy as they heard from God. 
We come to this passage tonight, we come to this psalm tonight, and we haven't had the time to read through it, and I do hope that you will when you go to your own home or throughout the course of the week. But we come to this psalm, a psalm that reflects on a rich heritage and in an assembly which has a rich heritage. A past in which the blessing of God was truly known and the promises of God most certainly fulfilled. God has been good to this local assembly. From humble beginnings as weekly meetings were established in the Mechanics Institute, to the first church building in Union Street, to the calling of the first pastor, Pastor Ryan, in 1885, to the second church building in Windsor Avenue, and now this the third church building here in Johnson's Row. We can reflect on the fruitful ministry of Willie Mullen, the careful and considerate pastorate of Alec Judd, the influential and prosperous ministry of Dennis Lyle. We can reflect on a rich heritage of Sunday school work, both now and in the years that have passed, all of which have provided countless children and young people with a firm Bible basis from which their lives could be used of God, from which their lives could flourish. And Sunday school, together with children's meetings and good news clubs, have allowed many a young child to be exposed to the gospel and to know a work of grace accomplished in their lives. We could reflect on the senior saints ministry, the women's ministry, the discipling and sending forth of many preachers, pastors, evangelists, and missionaries, all who serve local churches here in Northern Ireland or mission fields right across the world. We could reflect on the transmission of services across the globe, the distribution of tapes and CDs to people near and far, the gospel missions which have been held in which countless souls have been saved and men and women brought face to face with the matters of life and death. And I could go on and on. And mistake me not, for this is not an attempt and this is not a stage in which we are seeking to puff out the chest and say that we are a church among churches, not at all. But it is to remind us, one and all, of the rich heritage that we have. Of the many years on record which testify of the unfailing goodness and kindness of our God. But may I say tonight that the greatest danger we face is to nod our heads in agreement and fill ourselves into simply living off the fumes of our heritage and fail to make a measurable dent in our generation or fail to make a defined difference in Lurgan Town today. For as much as I can remind you that we have a rich heritage here and we all can rejoice together for all that he has done down through the years, you will never convince me that God has finished with this assembly. You'll never convince me that God has no more chapters to add to the record of history here. Yes, we are living in the last days And yes, our time is short. But brethren and sisters, let's make the most of our time. Let's stop sucking in the fumes of the good old days 
And let us with expectancy and anticipation desire that the same God of the old days would fulfill his promises to us would display his might and his power, would move with his mighty and his powerful hand. Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and the verse 11 and 12, Wherefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren and sisters, let us desire to see a work done here. Let us leave here tonight determined to fulfill the Father's will, committed to the Master's cause, and let us maintain the unity of the Spirit amongst us. Let us be in a constant war fitting, always alert, always ready. Let us always rejoice in our heritage, but let us expectantly wait on God that together we might write a further chapter of that heritage. Can we be expectant? Can we see all of this done? Of course we can. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless his word to our hearts tonight. Father, we rejoice in all that thy word reveals to us, and we thank thee indeed, Father, for that which it promotes us and encourages us to unity. Help us to maintain it. Help us, O Lord, to work at it. Help us to continue in it. Help us, Lord, always to be about the master's business. Help us to be at war with the devil. Help us, O Lord, to humble ourselves in the sight of an almighty God. And help us, O Lord, to rejoice in the heritage that we have. But help us with faith and expectancy to look forward and to labor on, knowing that the same God stands ready and able to pour out a blessing upon us. Bless every faithful servant of thine in this place. Bless everyone, O Lord, who has a burden and a desire to see thy work go forward in this house. Help us as a company of thy people to walk worthy of our calling. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.